Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How can we make sure that we are all safe and happy on the way there? Very excited to have our guest today. Before I introduce her, I would like to also make sure that you know who the other panelists are. I am, of course, Richard Littower. Hello, everyone. And on this podcast, we also have Ben Jimin. I guess fully. Nichols, Ben, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Good, good. Still jamming. And we have Errol Fox. Errol, how are you doing? Good. I've just finished my holiday shopping. That is incredibly exciting. I also finished mine because I never started. On that note, let's switch to something else. So Caroline Cinders is our guest today. Caroline, it is great to have you on here. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the show again. Actually, I interviewed you for the Digital Infrastructure Fund podcast. The Digital Infrastructure Fund podcast is a podcast dedicated to understanding what digital infrastructure is by interviewing past recipients of the fund from the Ford, Sloan, Amidjar, Mozilla, and Open Science Networks funders, which is really cool. They have dedicated money towards researchers figuring out how do we understand what digital infrastructure is. It was really great to have you on that podcast. And so I invited you on this one too, because a lot of the topics we covered were very, very similar. I hope it's all right. And it's okay if you repeat yourself, but thank you again for coming here. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited. I love talking about sustainability design and open source. So any opportunity to do that is always fun and Great. So thank you for having me. Awesome. We also like talking about those things. Caroline is calling today from London. She is the founder of Convocation Design and Research. She's also a critical designer, researcher, and artist. She's worked with the Tate Exchange, the Tate Modern, with the UN, with Ars Electronica's AI Lab, the Harvard Kennedy School, and many others. Today, I was hoping mainly to focus I wish I could focus on art and maybe we should just switch everything and just do that forever. But you have a lot of expertise looking at what codes of conduct mean and how to have safe communities and how to understand how to code together better. Can you talk a bit about how you started on that work? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a really wobbly and like jumbly road. It's not a linear or clear line at all. To me, it makes sense when I look at it and I look back at it because it was my journey in my path. But I think the way to start is I always think it's helpful when I'm talking to people to sort of let them know that my background is in photography and art and photojournalism. And then I got a master's in technology. But even as a photographer, I was always interested in communities and community norms and documenting subcultures and or different kinds of ethnographic groups that I was sort of engaging or seeing through the lens of a photographer. Like I got to know a bunch of Russian immigrants living in Brooklyn who were around my age. I was photographing this sort of rising folk scene in New York. I was photographing traveling musicians that were going between New Orleans, the West Coast, all the way up to Washington, and then to New York. So I got really interested in trying to really understand and sort of look at community norms in different kinds of specific spaces and communities. And I was always interested in technology and how effectively people were doing a lot of the same things online. They were forming communities. They were coming up with their own vocabularies, their own vernaculars. They were using tools in specific ways. And so for me, 
seeing the photographic work I was doing and then seeing this like technology work that I was interested in. To me, it was really overlapping. And I was always interested in studying communities. I just didn't know that that was a thing you could do in terms of technology that people would pay you to study people like user research. I thought a lot of the web and I'm this is like really early 2000s. I thought a lot of like the jobs for the web were just building websites. And so when I was finishing undergrad, I realized I really wanted to study design and technology. I really liked the photographic work I was doing, but I was very interested in communities online. And then as I was graduating undergrad, I found this program at the school I was going to NYU that was called the Interactive Telecommunications Program. And I discovered Clay Shirky's work there. And he was talking a lot about how people sort of come together online and form these communities and what that means. And so a year or two later, I applied to ITP. I got in and Clay Shirky became my academic advisor. And I guess from there, I kept looking at online communities and again, how behaviors are related to design. And I was really curious about what does it mean to design for community and all aspects of that community, including safety. And while I was in grad school, I was making a lot of video games and this was 2013. And so if you, if any of you know anything about internet history, then you probably know what's coming, which is I started looking at Gamergate because it was affecting people around me, but also I was making video games that I was interested in, again, how people are interacting in different spaces, what does safety look like in those spaces. And I guess it's kind of led me to where I am now because a lot of the stuff I was interested in is, well, what are the design implications, meaning how does design affect things like safety or sustainability or toxicity or even like delight for communities. And so it's kind of just been, again, this sort of wobbly line since 2013 that's getting, I guess, a little less wobbly. I really like the metaphor of the wobbly road, not just the windy one, but one that sort of wobbles along and goes all over the place. It's common in this industry, especially with people who are somewhat on the edges, who don't just do straight coding work, to have done a lot of other stuff. I know a lot of people who sort of entered on the sidelines and done other things. I don't know a lot of artists who've who've ended up in open source. And so it's really nice. Well, Errol's pointing at herself. Ben is pointing at herself. I don't know a lot of people who say right off the bat, I'm an artist first and a coder second. So it's really exciting to have someone with your caliber and your eye here. One of the things I was thinking about as you talked about the folk scene, as you talk about Russian immigrants, is that a lot of those spaces are very similar to what I would think of as the tech space, which is in that they have people which come in and out, but it's kind of amorphous, right? There's no clear boundaries. It's not like, here's your badge, go on into the conference center. If you're in the conference center, you're part of the group. If you're not, you're not. And so what I'm curious about is as an ethnographer, How do you understand the boundaries of communities and how do you look at them as building spaces of shared values? And what does that look like to you? I mean, I guess it depends in what context we're talking about this, because I think that there's a lot of similarities and overlap between how you can sort of study or embed with offline communities and online communities. But in terms of online communities, one of the things I sort of look at is what platforms they're on, what platforms they lead to, what becomes the more dominant platform and why, and then how that platform in a way, does it shape or impact the conversation or language or norms that that are occurring? So a way to think about that can be, let's say there is a community where we can use Gamergate as an example. They were across many different spaces. But one could argue slightly more dominant platforms that they would engage in and sort of talk to each other. 
And that would be things like Reddit and 4chan and 8chan. And those platforms have a similar design to them. They're board-based platforms. And so the ways in which conversation would unfold there was very similar, but also there was a similar, one could argue, like call and response towards engaging with each other. So posting a meme in Reddit, it is a slightly different kind of interaction than if you share it on Twitter. And there ends up being different kinds of interactions and responses on things like Reddit, Fortune, and Achan. So it can be responding with plus one or adding another meme and then another meme and everyone's sort of one-upping each other. You can reference sometimes other threads or you'll start a brand new thread right inside of a Reddit board and then just sort of let it die. And that's really normal that you'll start these discussion boards that kind of disappear. So it's a different kind of engagement. So the thing I look at is pretty much that I tend to just sort of sit in the background for a while and see, well, how are people talking to each other? When things are shared, are there explanations or links to it? Where are they linking other media from? How are people talking about what it is they're posting? And so an example of that is in 2016, when I was an artist in residence with BuzzFeed and iBeam, I was talking to a BuzzFeed investigative journalist. And I was looking at Vote, uh, V-O-A-T, which is the sort of now defunct platform that our alt-right subreddit was using on and off in the case that they got shut down from Reddit, which they did in like 2017. But it's another like sort of clone of Fortune and HN and Reddit. It's a board-based platform. So I was like looking at the things they were talking about and they posted this cartoon of Anita Sarkeesian sort of rendered in the way of the happy merchant, which is this really anti-Semitic rendering. So it shows someone really hunched over with this like very hooked nose, um, like really little hands. It's a sort of graphic rendering you see a lot across like neo-Nazi websites, like the Daily Stormer would repeatedly draw people in this manner. So anyway, so I'm on the vote and I'm looking at this. It was a really short discussion thread. I think they mentioned Anita, not even by like her last name, but just her first name. And there wasn't a lot of context around who she was, but clearly like everybody knew who she was because they were sort of commenting on her. So I like showed that to the reporter because he was asking me, why don't you just scrape everything and then sort of organize things later? And so I showed him this and I was like, well, what do you see here? And he's like, I don't know. It's like a thread with five comments. And I was like, well, I'll tell you what I see, which is that she's a kind of icon or she's been rendered this iconographic way. They all clearly know who she is, even though we wouldn't be able to get any of that kind of metadata or text analysis from scraping because they're referencing her without describing her name or the explicit place she's working. But they all clearly know who she is because they're having a conversation about her. I was like, so she's reached a point of being so known to this group that if you didn't know who she was, you wouldn't know what they're talking about. And like, so the reason I do qualitative research and read stuff is to be able to grab these different kinds of instances. And then so we then keyword searched her name, produced her first name, and she was only mentioned like once. And I was like, so this could be, if we were scraping, this would be something like, this would be a variable maybe we wouldn't even consider. I'm like, but it's important because again, why do they know her? She's a victim of Gamergate we can start to see how perhaps there's like overlapping conversations between these groups. And we wouldn't necessarily get that if we just scraped all of it. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't scrape all of it, but I was trying to explain to him, I was like, the reason I'm spending like 20 hours a week, like reading all of these websites 
is to try to have an understanding of what do they know? What do they don't know? Again, what are the norms within their groups? And then what are these spaces where with things like Anita, that there is this kind of shared vocabulary or understanding? So this is, I guess, to say the answer to your question is I just spend a lot of time reading and being in communities and seeing, well, how do they talk to each other and engage with each other? And what is a sort of like baseline of information that in a way sort of sets the tone of the culture and of that community? So... I mean, personally, I find this kind of stuff really fascinating and I don't know whether you'll be able to answer this question or not, because it is quite potentially exposing for the communities that maybe you work with. So maybe you can answer it in an abstract way. So I did a lot of work in my degree around communities online and I don't want the podcast to get demonetized, but in like the adult space. And I found it really, really interesting to see how people spoke to each other on like adult forums, essentially, like around services that you can get as an adult. Moving swiftly along, but I'm curious as to what are the kinds of habits or the kinds of things that you do see happening in the spaces that you observe? And also, I'm really curious if there are things that you have seen specifically within open source communities and any sort of background that you have on I guess, why you think that it happens in these communities. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I guess it may be easier to answer that if there are more context or more specificity. So I guess, are you curious about like positive or negative behaviors or I guess either things I've noticed in like the my paper from like the digital infrastructure grant or some of the work I've done with Wikimedia, or are you curious, like open source broadly? Because I feel like it's super different depending upon either the, at times the coding language we're talking about and inside of that language, then the different slice of the community that's there. The work I did for the digital infrastructure grant, it was on JS comps. So like there's a JS conference called JS comp, and then they have sort of like a decentralized, but like very interlocked community. So the conferences are decentralized in the sense that there's not one like organizing body deciding next year we're going to expand into this country. The way that the conferences get started is usually someone has attended AJS comp somewhere and then they're like, I really want to bring it to like my city. And then, and I'm speaking sort of broadly, but this is from all the different organizers I interviewed. I think I interviewed eight or 10 different individual conferences. They usually attend a conference. They usually are like, this is great. My city needs it. And they contact either the conference they went to or another conference organizer. And then the way to sort of be able to become a part of the JSConf family and to use the branding is you need someone to effectively, I guess, mentor you. So like another conference organizer needs to say like, I will help guide your conference a little bit. You need to have attended a conference, a JSConf before, which Again, most people usually have, and that's when they're like, we need to have this in our city. And then you have to have a code of conduct. And then those sort of three things is sort of what allows you to be a JS Const. And then there are like monthly meetups in different cities that are like sort of affiliated in the sense that they're either using the same code of conduct or they're considered like a family event in that the organizers of the conference, maybe know the organizers of the weekly meetup, the meetup attendees usually go to the conference and vice versa. And usually, again, those meetups either are using the JSConf code of conduct or they're using like a code of conduct. And then there's just kind of like a similar 
guess for lack of a better term, vibe between all of them. There's a lot of really bright colors. There's a lot of talks that are maybe about design or emotions or burnout or management, like how to be a good manager, along with very technical talks. There's usually at times a fairly diverse organizing body, sometimes not racially diverse, but sometimes in certain cities, it is extraordinarily diverse. There's usually some gender diversity. Some organizing bodies even have gender parity, which is great. So you start to see these kinds of similar things across all of them. And then there are like sort of aesthetic choices I see kind of running between all those different events. I call it like cute JavaScript where sort of the rise of like really cool keyboard caps or people wearing like pastel colors or a lot of like hand-drawn sort of comics and cartoons sort of coming into your tutorials or like the materials you're putting out or the educational materials. Sort of like we see with like a Sailor HG or Amy Mebo's work. So that's something about, I guess, that open source community I've noticed, but that is totally different from like the Wikimedia community. I used to work on their anti-harassment team. And those communities could, I think, not be more different, I guess, in terms of aesthetic choices or even just the size of them. JF's comps are, are big, but small. They're a lot more like racially and gender diverse than like Wikimedia projects tend to be. But you know, then I guess the difference is like Wikimedia projects, the Wikimedia volunteers are like very involved. They're like thinking a lot about what it means, I guess, to be a Wikimedian. They're doing, one could argue, a lot more like volunteering or a lot more work on the individual project. But also in a way with Wikimedia, a lot of the projects are already linked to media, whereas, you know, you're kind of in a way around very specific places or like a hub, if you will, online when you're doing things as a Wikimedian, because there's Wikimedia Commons, there's Wikipedia, there's different language Wikipedias, but they're all kind of linked together under this sort of core project. Even if this core project has hundreds of different language wikis and or write many different projects. Whereas if you're part of, one could argue like the JSConf community, you may be working on a bunch of projects, but that has maybe nothing to do with the conference or that community. Making a tutorial about Rust, even though you attend like the JSConf meetups. And I guess the difference in those is that like the JSConfs are like physical events where like a community will sort of coalesce around. But like Wikimedia as an open source community, there are some physical events, but it's much more about the digital space that you're in. And that's like the convening space. It's the digital versus the physical. I have a very quick follow-up question, which is it kind of sounds like you're talking about all of these different factors that influence a community. So it may be the language that a community is gathering around other events that a community has already kind of had in the past that kind of impact and influence the future. I wonder, can you talk a little bit about how platforms themselves kind of influence communities and whether they kind of skew value of different set, sets of skills or behaviors? Because I'm just kind of interested in kind of what is happening now in communities that we're working open source and how we can continue, I hope, this trend to just bring more people, like some of the people in this conversation that don't have like traditional STEM skills into open source. So yeah, I was just wondering, like, how do you feel about the influence that a platform has on communities and appreciation and values of the skill sets within that community? Yeah, thank you so much for that. I guess, again, it also really depends on the community. So if we look, for example, at like 
Wikimedia or the Wikimedia projects as a community, one could argue that at first glance, like the way to use the tool or how to contribute is pretty low barrier. It's pretty easy to grasp. And on one hand, I think that that argument is very valid. I do a lot of what's called Wikinoming, where I go and I help clean up articles or add punctuation or things like that. But there is also, I think, a barrier to doing any kind of Wikimedia project is that if you start a brand new page, like that could be taken down by a more seasoned editor. And if you're new, you may not know any of the vernacular or the vocabulary to be able to talk about like why you put this up. And you also won't have the edit count necessarily to be taken seriously or be viewed as an equal when engaging with that editor. That is one of the toxic parts of Wikimedia. And it's one of the reasons why it ends up being very predominantly white and part of the global north and male is there is a lot of at times fear and pushback against new users. And so I think when we're trying to think of ways for people to be involved in open source projects, one of the things is also to think about is, well, what are the things we need done and we need help with? And who does that then traditionally fall to? So I think about this a lot when I think of community health initiatives or harassment teams for open source projects. Are those teams necessarily trained in how to respond to harassment? Are they the best people to be handling harassment cases? You know, just because you can write code, that doesn't necessarily mean you have like facilitation skills. A facilitator may have a lot of facilitation skills and not have maybe necessarily the coding chops to add to the library. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be a part of the community, though. So I think it's really important to think about what are all the different roles that like helps a community function and thrive. And that maybe those roles don't necessarily have to come from the most prolific writer or editor or programmer. It can come from another part of the community. And I think one of the big issues we're going to have is trying to get all of these different community roles taken seriously by the old guard or a lot of those that have traditionally held more power in those communities. And I mean, I think about this a lot because I've been looking a little bit at some of the different stuff happening in, in the rest community. It seems like there is a lot of like friction and tension there right now. And I don't know, I'm wondering if a lot of it is like, is this just because it's a smaller community with maybe not enough participants who are, I hate to say it this way, who are like less technical, but have like better people skills or have facilitation skills or get program management skills or the skills to help do grant writing or run a nonprofit. Those are all different skills we need in open source communities. And so I think we're still stuck in a place where community worth for a community member is how many lines of code you've written, maybe not necessarily how many successful events have you run? How many facilitation trainings have you gone through? How many harassment teams have you helped serve spun up a guide? And those are the skills we need in open source communities too. Like we desperately need those skills. I think about this a lot as well. I think about it on a near daily basis because of essentially my role in open source is not on the coding side. And I, I think I had a question, but then you started talking about this. And my question, I think, can be broadened to this kind of application. But I was really curious about a specific around how many communities have you encountered or have you encountered any communities that are very resistant to code of conduct being implemented? And I think that the reason that I wanted to ask that question is usually I have in the past used the framing of introducing a code of conduct into a community as the lens of how do we be more inclusive for non-coders essentially. 
because often I find, and I don't know whether you would agree, that the communities that are very kind of homogenous, that are comprised mainly of people that code on the thing that are, they are together in, don't tend to like, or sometimes don't feel like a code of conduct is needed for whatever reason that is. And I've encountered this at least once. And when I've kind of framed my conversation about code of conduct introduction to include hey, what about these other things that we want done in the community? How do we signal that we welcome those? It's sometimes been easier for me through the lens of a code of conduct conversation. And I'm just curious whether you've, again, seen and worked with communities and found any maybe positive things in in how to start to introduce these uh, role diversities. That's such a good question. And and thank you so much for asking. And yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting because there have been times where I've had pushback from open source or creative technology communities from a code of conduct. And the pushback isn't necessarily like, why would we have one? It's more like, well, we don't think we need one because we're really small. And I'm, and I always have to sort of be like, community doesn't mean friendship. And just because also you're a small group of people, that doesn't mean you aren't going to have a problem. It just means you haven't had one yet. And then usually what happens, sadly, is a few months later, I get an email like, oh, Caroline, this thing happened. Do you have any advice for us? And I always have to do this thing where it's very gentle. I told you so. It's a usually like, okay, well, let's talk through what happened. Why did we think that happened? Okay, so if you had a code of conduct, we could apply like this rule or this general framing to this problem. And let's then walk through, what do you think the solutions would be around that? Who's going to implement the solutions? Okay, if it's just falling to you, the person that's come to me, let's talk about why do we think it falls to you? Is there an understanding or a structure as to like why you're the person responding? And it really does become this deep conversation. I was reading this really interesting toolkit yesterday. So it's called a toolkit for cooperative, collective and collaborative cultural work. And like the first few pages actually really get into what I was just sort of talking about, which is how do you acknowledge hierarchies and how do you also acknowledge like the structure of your collaboration? And this toolkit was made with a lot of input from community organizers and mutual aid groups. And it also talks about how do you balance like the labor of who does what. And they give really great examples of are things that need to be done in terms of admin work. Then there are then sometimes like the fun things you get to do in a community. Who's doing more of the ad work and who's doing more of the fun stuff. But anyway, the reason I bring this up is there's a lot of, I think, conversations that communities don't necessarily have at first in terms of this kind of really important structural organizing that needs to happen in a community. So who is responsible for when something goes wrong is a very real conversation people have to have. Also, our understanding of what is wrong or what is horror, even if we're in a community together, may differ. And the way to think about that in more concrete is perhaps all of us in this room together, this digital room the four of us are in, maybe we all have an understanding of what is like a bad thing in a physical space, which is a fight breaking out. Like maybe we could all very immediately agree without saying that person should be removed from our event and not welcome back. But what do we do if let's say a microaggression occurs or someone makes a slightly misogynistic joke between the four of us without saying it, would we have the same response? Probably not. 
And these are the things that communities have to think about, which is, well, what do we do when the smaller, more toxic things happen? And we have to ensure that if we're the organizing body, we're having the same response. And that also we're communicating with each other about the response we had and then what their rehabilitation is going to be. Because that person is a part of our community. We have to think about, well, how do we also care for the person experiencing harm? So are we thinking of a transformative or restorative justice model? Are we the people that should be doing that? Have we been trained in handling this? Can we handle this in a way that protects the person being harmed? Can we also handle this in a way where the person that did the harm is either learning from this and also maybe won't repeat the harm again? This is where this was in my digital infrastructure report that I looked at some work by this dot called like the ladder of consequences. It's where you sit down as a group after you've formed your code of conduct and you talk about where all different kinds of harm occur and how serious they are and what your responses are in terms of rehabilitation and also what your responses are in terms of like punitive action if there needs to be some. So maybe if someone is, again, made a misogynistic joke at a talk. So easy, even your girlfriend can do it. Well, how could you respond to that? You could wait till that person's talk is over, sort of delicately pull them off to the side so they are not embarrassed in front of anyone or ashamed in front of the entire group. And you explain how that broke your code of conduct. And maybe what you should do after that is let the other organizers know in a place you've agreed to sort of document all of this that only you have access to, you and the other organizers, and you just write it down. And maybe this person apologizes, it's not a big deal, but at least you have a note of this. So maybe three months go by and this person does a talk again and they do the same thing. All right, so is this still in the same ladder? What's the response that you would do? This is why it's important to sit down and actually talk about all of this and have a structure around, okay, they did break this and they've done it again. What do we do? Well, maybe we could, again, pull them aside and say, hey, you broke our code of conduct the second time we've reminded you. We may have to take some action about this. We're going to get back to you about it. Then maybe all of you meet and convene and decide we are going to let them do a talk for the rest of the year or maybe for six months or eight months. And we're going to tell them that. So there is, they understand what's going on, right? So there is a response to the action that they did. And maybe we can also should provide a place for rehabilitation and tell them you're still a member of our community. This is why what you did was harmful, but you're still a member of our community. And so one of us would like to sit down with you for 45 minutes and just have a conversation about our code of conduct and how we understand that maybe you didn't do this on purpose. We want to walk you through what our code of conduct really means and what we hope it means to you as a member of our community. And so what I'm describing here is three different responses. It is a punitive action of, okay, maybe you aren't going to do this. Like you can't speak. You now know what's going on. It's a rehabilitation aspect of saying, you're a member of our community. I want to sit with you and work with you on our code of conduct. And then internally, it's like the structural documentation we're talking about, right? It's a sort of structural response. I really like listening to this conversation because you make it sound very easy, possibly because it's so cogent, because you've done this a million times before. For those of us who, who are new to dealing with code of conduct stuff, do you have any other resources besides toolkit.press? Where can people get up to scratch on this? I'm also aware of time. And so I just want to make sure that people have takeaways that they can have and use. 
I have written a lot about codes of conduct and I'm hopefully going to be, when I have a website for convocation, have a whole section on codes of conduct on how to approach, I think, writing one. But you can also hire people. I'm always for hire. If people want to write or generate a code of conduct together or go through any training. Valerie Ruren's written about this a lot. A lot of her materials are online somewhere. I think JSConfU has talked a little bit about their processes. There aren't necessarily a lot of processes I've seen that get documented, which is why I was really glad to do my project to be able to sort of go and document how people form code of conduct. A lot of what happens is people will take a code of conduct. They'll take a code of conduct and be like, this is it, this works for us, and they use it. And that's not necessarily bad. If you see a code of conduct you like, you should use it. You should use that code of conduct, but you should also really read it and make sure you're trained in implementing it. And I think the training is what's harder for people because the training is, I mean, if you want to do your own training, a thing to do is to sit down and have everyone read the code of conduct, select different scenarios that either have happened in the past, or you could come up with scenarios on your own and then work through how would you respond to them? And so then you sort of sit there together and you say, this is we are response to this. It's we are response to this. I would say a big thing you need to do is also look at, again, this dot's ladder of consequences and sit down and help that also like write your own and say like when X happens or when X bucket of things happens, this is what we need to do in response. Thank you so much. Where can people hire you and read your stuff on the web? Right now it's carolinecinders.com. Hopefully in February, a convocations website will be launched. And so we will have a way to contact us and look at our materials. But for right now, carolinecinders.com or carolinecinders on Twitter is a good way to get a hold of me. Thank you so much. That's Caroline Cinders, S-I-N-D-E-R-S. Caroline, it's been really great listening to you and having you on the podcast. I really appreciate the effort you put in this space, the example you lead going forward. and the communities which you've touched, I think we shared the last time I talked to you, um, how much the early JSConf communities meant to me. And so it's really great to see how some of that has gone forward and the lessons learned there are still going through the ecosystem and hopefully building better and stronger and more sustainable communities in the long haul. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun talk. Don't go yet. This is now the part of the show where we give some love back to other people. So Spotlight is where we basically point out this project helped me, this people was awesome, this people, or I really enjoyed this cake I had yesterday and you should buy it too. Whatever you want, that's the Spotlight. So Errol Fox, what is your Spotlight today? My Spotlight today is there are so many talks that happen at conferences now that I struggle to get through them all, but there is one that I managed to get through and was so, so good. It's by Kieran Wren Oliver. And they speak about how you can begin to build a community repository and why you need one for your open source project. So I'll drop the link in the show notes. But yeah, fantastic talk about how to center your community in a way that is familiar, hopefully, to many people in the form of a repository. Awesome. Thank you so much. Talks are great. Ben Nichols. Having already done my shout out for 24 pull requests, I'm going to do another shout out for another kind of dark sky astro project, which is called Open Astro Tech. So this is 
project that started by a guy called Fabian Ulecker, and it is a 3D printing kind of set of schematics for you to print a tracker and a guide and to kind of be a little bit more involved in the tool kind of production that you can use to track objects in the sky and take photos. So check that out. You don't have to spend a load of money on equipment. If you've got a 3D printer, you might have a bit of fun. Awesome. Thank you. My spotlight today is Christmas bird counts. Christmas bird counts is a 122-year-old tradition in the United States where you put a pin somewhere, draw a 15-mile radius circle, and then get all your friends together and see how many birds you can see somewhere around Christmas. I do a lot of these. I generally do three or four a year. And it's just a highlight of my year to go count chickadees and then have a big potluck or virtual potluck now and just see other friends in the community and help science. Lots of fun. There's probably a Christmas bird count near you if you're in the States. If you're in Britain or somewhere else, there's going to be community science stuff that's similar. So Christmas bird counting makes me feel connected to the land and my community. Caroline Sinders, what's yours? I guess mine would be one I've already mentioned, which is the toolkit for cooperative collectives and collaborative cultural work. I think it's a really great read. I really enjoyed it. I guess on a personal level, my shout out is my friends and I have been doing um, this year was our 10th year of doing Pie Hard, where we eat pie and watch Die Hard during the holiday season. <laughs> um, we've kept yeah. this going for 10 years. We started in grad school, so that is fun and feels like a milestone. Surely you could have stopped after 3.14 years. Oh, snap. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. sorry. That was great. Oh, 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 indeed. Pie Hard is the best tradition. I love that. Thank you all so much. Caroline, it's been great to have you on. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. 